0: Why not try this kid?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, At risk of backtracking ever so slightly, just because I think um, it's just a very interesting story to share with the viewers, that actually just before he becomes Prime Minister, um, when he's sort of in his his wilderness years, before the India Act gets passed, uh, he actually does leave the country for the one and only time in Uh his life. This is when his trip to France is. and i'll I'll be very brief about it, but he uh, goes with two of his friends from Cambridge. he goes with wilbur wilber uh, William Wilberforce and with um uh, Elliot um apparently he had a pongchamp for the illiterate names you know <laughs> as his friends but um he um they get to a sitting barn ready to cross the channel and uh, obviously to dover and uh, they all sort of do that classic thing where oh and you've you've brought the travel papers haven't you no, no, I thought you were doing it, you know, and all three of them find that they haven't got their the documents, their, um, their letters of, um, uh, of approval. So sort of the, the general idea was that if you're travelling to another country back then, you knew someone in that country who was going to vouch for your character, mm. almost like a reference, um, you know, admit you were safe to to go there. And uh, they managed to get some uh, some of those documents from a friend um, for a, a gentleman living in Reims. And they get there and find that he's he's just a grocer, <laughs> and he's got one room in the back, and so they're all sort of huddled. You know, they've gone from Lincoln's Inn and all these great, you know, to just huddling in the back of this grocer's room <laughs> for a few a few weeks. And then um, word spreads in France that the son of the great Chatham is about, and before you know it, he's um, invited to the great, um, you know, estates of Fontainebleau. And he actually does get to meet Louis the Sixteenth, Marie Antoinette, and really? um, he, he very I didn't know that. Yeah, he very briefly meets huh. the, the the French aristocracy, huh. which is very interesting because I think, um, obviously, as you know, students of history will know, those people aren't going to be around much longer. And so, you know, a bit like Burke, when Burke goes to France just sort of before and he says, well, Mm. I met all these people Mm. that you've just killed off and everything. So Pitt also got to do that. There was even talk of a a proposal uh, to marry Pitt to Jacques uh, Necker. You know, the finance minister's daughter, oh, right. which never happens. But oh. um, eventually he's brought back on the urgent news of the India bill being put through. So there oh. we are. We've just caught up that little aspect of his life. That's very interesting.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. I knew Burke had gone across and met a lot of people. Mm. I didn't know Pitt had. That's surprising, because uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a fairly important detail. So, every time met, he goes abroad. If he met um, Louis XVI, mm. um, yeah, okay, wow, okay, that's interesting. Mm. It's always good to learn new things like that. Yeah, I have to slot that into my matrix of sort of knowledge about Pitt <laughs> that that happened, try and remember that. That's a good mm. one. Um, so, yeah, so when he starts before, so there's a period there in his, um, in this sort of 17 year period of being Prime Minister. Um, when he first gets in, and then the events of the French Revolution. So I suppose that's sort of the calm before the storm, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think so. He's 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 very diligent. He he's um he really enjoys finance. Um, I can't fathom how. I <laughs> you know, think it's stuffy and dry, and I can only think of the Monty Python sketch with the the chartered accountant mm. who wants to be a lion tamer. But um, <laughs> I I think that. Um, he, he's very meticulous about the numbers, and at the time when he becomes prime minister, um, he obviously, as transfer of the exchequer as well, he mm. starts working on the budget. And uh, but before that, he obviously needs to win the general election so he can crush this opposition, and so starts the uh, the mad riotous general election of um, seventeen eighty four. And this results in all of the things that we'd spoken about, the public sentiment coming back onto his side. Um, But another thing that Pitt does, which um, is very important and integral to how he acts as a statesman, is that we were obviously saying he's quite incorruptible and won't take a title for himself. But he just basically writes to the king and says, look, you need to unleash your power to create peerages. Mm. We need to get all the people who are opposing us, get them sent to the lords, mm. you know, so mm. I can do some more in the commons, buy them off with peerages, you mm. know, mm. pay off this, um, his wife, she's got enormous debts. Can you, can we have £2,000 there to pay that off so he'll come over pensions to my bench. For right, pensions? Pensions, yeah. yeah. All these things, you know, the royal coffers are totally let loose, you know, mm. because Pitt Although he's not interested in those things himself, he understands that that makes other men tick enormously yeah. and he's willing to use those to to do whatever he needs to shore up his own majority in the House of Commons.
0: One thing I think we have to say um, in that period before that election is that where he didn't have any sort of majority, me if I'm wrong on this, but Fox... Tabled um, a sort of vote of no confidence in him and won. And so, well, these days, if there's a vote of, if there's even really going to be a vote of no confidence, you're already, your government's certainly going to fall. If one actually takes place and you lose, you're absolutely obliged to resign and call another general election. If you don't, then quite legitimately, people say, well, you're a tyrant then. And so that's what happened. Like that, So anyway, today it just wouldn't happen. But then Fox, yeah, Fox causes vote of no confidence, wins it, and Pitt just refuses to resign. And it get it goes to the point where the king says, well, it's 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 the the bottom bottom line legally is that the king can say no, I don't, I I I'm not going to force you to resign, and I, so I'm not going to. But so that's what happened, I believe. Yeah. But so, but that is a constitutional crisis.
1: Yes, it is. Um, but yeah, he's um, one. He's the king's last resort. You know, keeping Fox and. Uh, I mean, I get
0: why George III did that. Right. Because he's like anything but Fox at any cost, whatever. Yes. We'll have a civil war before I allow that to happen. <laughs> I, I think.
1: Right. I think he'd have done it. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, he, um, but I suppose it's that thing as well that you know. Oh, we've tabled a vote of no confidence in you, and we've won it. And Pitt's like. Yeah, I know you have no confidence in me. Hmm. What do you think the past two months have been about? You know, with me not getting any legislation through. This is not new news, but that's okay. We're going to
0: have the general election and I'm going to trounce you in it. Um, so I just think that's crazily ballsy mm. for Pitt. Again, as a young man, perhaps, perhaps it was better that he was young, where you sort of, you're sort of not scared sometimes when you're younger. I know it's the case. You get a bit more timid as you get older. That's why, you know, really old men, uh, sometimes extremely scared, timid figures. And when you're young, really young, you're just, you're just ballsy. He's <laughs> not you, as confined you, by the conventions of yeah. his time. Right. I mean, that is extremely brave to lose a vote of no confidence and go, mm. Yeah, what now? Mm. Yeah, I'm not going. <laughs> what now? What are you going to do? <laughs> right, that is, that's gutsy. It really, really is. Mm. Well, of course, he knew he had the king. It's it's gutsy of both of George III and Pitt to do that. Because they could, or they very nearly were, they were even, staring down the barrel of, maybe you're going to get mobs now. Maybe there will be actual civil unrest. Probably not on some sort of civil war, but... okay, you're playing with fire now. Very, very real, politically, you're playing with fire now. Because your opponents legitimately can say, you've got no right... They're not... They're not lying. No, there's a vote of no confidence in the Commons. What are you doing, not resigning? So, again, not only is he young and a genius, but he's got sort of a, a will of of iron. Yeah, he does. So he's a remarkable person.
1: Yeah. Uh, one anecdote to to sort of um, demonstrate his um, appeal to the public. Um, Forgive me, I can't quite remember chronologically where this slots in to the events, but I do think it is around the time of this election, is that he's um, being given the freedom of the city, Mm -hmm. of London, and uh, he goes out to his carriage, and he's just swarmed by Pittites and followers from the general public who love what he's doing, and they they uncouple the horses and uh, start pulling his carriage for him. And obviously, that's very flattering, but all of a sudden, you've no idea where they're taking you. And they end up going around to um, Pall Mall, to the Prince Regent. Oh, this sorry. is
0: after he wins the election, that election.
1: Oh, is it? Yeah, I think yes. that's in
0: the immediate wake of him winning the election, I think. Right. But sorry, go on. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, only to say that uh, Pall Mall, where the uh, Prince of Wales is uh, is living, and they start... Um, Carlton House. Yeah, making some... uh Gestures and uh, profanities at the, uh, <laughs> and they, they, then they go around to Fox's residence, and Pitt has to stop them from smashing his windows. Um, they just the untrammeled mob, mm. just you know, you can't. Um, it's only the respect for Pitt that actually gets him to to obviously stop that happening. And um, then they pull around uh, Brooks' uh, club, which is where the uh, the big wigs literally hang out, mm. and. Um, uh, a bunch of uh, Foxites come out with uh, clubs made of uh, chair legs and Pitt has to evacuate the carriage with his brother and begotten to safety because these people are so outraged by him and what he's doing and he eventually has to flee to the safety of whites uh, club but that's the level of you know riotous, just anarchy that these sorts yeah. of election processes could create
0: at the time It's close It's close to it, it's more brawl mm. It's very, very close to, if not really the beginnings of, sort of some sort of mob rule uh, it's really interesting that thing about the gentlemen's clubs brooks and whites um they still exist white certainly does mm. um yeah and the different political factions lots and lots of gambling uh, could go on and on and on about the, the gentlemen's mm. clubs um but uh yeah so pit very close to being beaten up maybe beaten to death who knows it could it could have got nasty real quick
1: History could have changed that day.
0: Right, yeah. (laughs) So, once again, to say, in comparison, we're very civilised in the 21st century compared to that, right? We are. I mean, you wouldn't get a mob surrounding uh, uh, Gordon Brown or Rishi Sunak trying to beat him up with chair legs. No. We would, you know, (laughs) it's sort of crazy to think like that. Or or, um, sort of storming Downing Street and throwing bricks through Number 10's window. Right. Uh, yeah. No, so no way. It's a lot more cutthroat. It really is. Um, again, some of, the, some of the paintings by Hogarth give you a feeling, sort of the general drunkenness. Mm. Um, that's one thing I'd like to say if, um, you know, Pitt was something of a, of a drunk, three-bottle-a-day man. Mm. Um, Fox was a drunk, not the first, not the last uh, senior politicians who are essentially functioning alcoholics. But drink in general... It was extremely pervasive. I mean, most water was quite dirty, so even in the 19th century, a lot of people just drunk small beer. Yeah. Um, and you could buy a pint of gin for a penny. Bargain. There were just gin shops on every corner. Not every corner, that's an exaggeration. But you could get <laughs> gin, you could get gin extremely easily in London in the late 18th century. Lots of it. Really dirty, cheap gin. What a penny. Of course, a penny was worth more than it is today, a lot more, but nonetheless pint of gin for a penny. So everyone, certainly by the evening, (laughs) not everyone, but a lot of people were sort of drunk. Yes. A lot of the time. Yeah. Um, When you look at the rum rations for the Royal Navy, sort of crazy, really. Sort of, was everyone walking around a little bit drunk most of the time? I think maybe. Um, It just, yeah. Again, today, the 21st century, we're actually a lot more, you know, we... People aren't drunk all the time. No,
1: we have grown up a little bit. <laughs>
0: a little bit. Just a yeah. little bit. Yeah, more raucous times. Just yeah. much, much more raucous times.
1: I, I think the cherry on the top to this story as well, though, is that when they um, sort of put it to Fox, have you instigated this attack on Mr. Pitt? Um, Fox's alibi was, no, no, it wasn't me. I was in bed with my mistress. <laughs> <laughs> Just as the absolute, you know, chef's kiss to, to finish that, that story. And, and everyone was sort of like, Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, fair enough, fair enough, you
0: know. Oh, well, we can verify that, and that was the case, so... Yeah. um yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> yeah, for not <laughs> yeah, investigating it, Mr. Fox. Um, but well, it's interesting you say that, but I think it, um, even though that was his alibi, he probably was a, a Foxite, some sort of... Fo- well, they were the followers of Fox that did that. They were. Um, I think the... Uh, just one last thing before we move on. Um, I mentioned earlier the Golden Riots. I might be mistaken, but I think they're sort of a bit before this, but just to say, just to give a colour of the times again, on that, that, this, this topic of how sort of violent or tumultuous society was, politics was, the riot riots, so I think that's 1780, anyway, you know, you've got, um, uh, they, they tried, they did a run on the Bank of England, they tried to sort of burn down the Bank of England, or they, they there was just a giant mob, giant mob running, running amok, really through London, um, burning down things, um, really complete, pretty much completely out of control. Obviously, nothing like the sans culot of Paris no. in, in eighty nine, or whatever. But um, you know, getting there, um, you are sort of quite close to m- m- mob or anarchy. A lot of the time, like these days, it feels like we're nowhere near. Like, what would it take? I I, I don't think there's any outrage that would make mobs like that take control of London or Paris. It seems. Yeah, I think. Whereas there, it's always like it seems like it's one event away from happening. Mm. It's different times. Yeah,
1: definitely. There, there is a sense of morbid curiosity in the way of, well, what would it take in our times to to create that sort of effect? But um, Mm. yeah, it's. uh, back then, yeah, much more vol And also, but you know, it's just a sense, you could get away with more. There's no CCTV, there's no fingerprints for what you're doing. You know, you're just a face in the crowd. There's
0: barely any police. Yeah. Until Robert Peel, much later, there's not really a proper police force as such. Mm. Um, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah. And life is cheaper as well. I think people were... Well, life was cheaper, mm. so they're probably much more and shorter, brutal. Uh, uh, people were people were more brutal yes they were. so uh yeah um something Wilberforce talked a lot about about manners mm. uh, really morality there was a lot more coarse in the 18th early 19th century than it is today but anyways um so um the beginning of Pitt's ministry with with a majority right and now after this election which right. he does yeah. do well because the feeling in the country was people like fox and his followers Yeah, they had their chance and Mm -hmm. they they, they, they screwed it up. They've been sort of at the top of power for a while now. We don't like what we're seeing. No. So let's try something new. So he gets quite a big majority, doesn't he?
1: He does. Huge. And this stays for a very very long time but even then with a huge majority that doesn't mean that all of his political endeavors actually come to fruition he's defeated on on a a number of his sort of principal passion projects actually the first of which to mention is actually his his pitch for reform which you'd sort of briefly mentioned you know doesn't really come to uh, fruition until 1832 you know when it's passed with the the reform act but Pitt wants to Sort of abolish all these rotten boroughs and just clear up the country a bit, and you know rejig some of the lines of where you know these districts are, and um, get some of the corruption out of politics. But uh, even that, with the because again, it's that thing that what we were saying about you know just because you've been elected with um, people who are sympathetic to your government, it, there's no manifesto. They haven't promised to back you on this particular topic. You know, they're will just sort of tepidly in your favour. Um, there's no whip system. That no, there's no to. whip system. And so that doesn't really go uh, anywhere at all, really. But one of the big things that, you know, to start speaking of his achievements, you know, that start to happen as soon as becomes PM, is, um, he, you know, he writes his first budget. And at the time of that, obviously, Britain has... Um, I think it's eight, 184 million pounds of debt. The nas- that's what the national debt is. Obviously, a lot of that accumulated by uh, the, the War of Independence. And uh, the tax revenues generated uh, per year at that point in England, they're only, in Great Britain, are only sitting at 13 million. So you're not going to scratch the surface mm. of starting to pay that off and so what Pitt does, his economic plan, um, is to raise taxes, um, but, not, but in a way that is he thinks will be more palatable to the public by just putting little taxes everywhere as opposed to big taxes on a few things. And so there, there comes to be a, a tax on hats and hmm. bricks and tiles and linen hmm. and, uh, and coal, although I think that one gets repealed. But he just taxes lots of little things and another thing that he does to start stimulating the economy is to make to crack down on uh on the smuggling trade that's uh, going yeah. on around it's a big one. rampant at the time i um i actually when i was when i was younger i um one of my first ever residential trips uh, when i was a, a kid and um, about year six so i'd have been 10 or 11 was um to go to robin hoods bay Okay. On, on the Yorkshire coastline, which was one such place in the 1700s that was rampant for this uh, this smuggling trade, and uh, if you happen to be about, please go see it. It's a beautiful. It's like a moment frozen in time. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful place, very well preserved. But uh, yeah, Robin Hood's Bay being an example of that. And um, uh, they were smuggling in tea, chiefly, because Mm. uh, the uh, import tax on tea was about 119%. Mm. And so Pitt brought that down to 25% so that people felt more sure about, you know, not looking to a legal means of acquiring tea, but going through the proper channels of commerce.
0: So yeah, quite often it's the case that if a tax rate is too high, if you bring it down, you actually get bigger incomes from it, bigger, larger revenues, mm-hmm. because uh, people are more likely to buy that commodity now. Yeah. Uh, so bigger volumes go through the books, and you end up with more money as a, as a net at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's something I'd just like to stress there for anyone who might not know that smuggling was a massive thing. Mm-hmm in the 17th and 18th, even into the 19th century, there's lots and lots and lots of smugglers' bays all around the British coast. There's lots in Kent. Um, Well, there's lots all along the south coast and the east coast of Britain, all sorts of smugglers' coves, smugglers' bays. Um, So, yeah, instead of just paying taxes on things, you just smuggle it in, sell it, uh, you know, illicitly, and uh, the, the state, the government gets nothing and you keep it all. And it was just absolutely rampant. And that, that, you can't really stress it enough how much that was, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about crippling our economy, but we were just leaving loads of money. We were just losing, essentially, loads of money that we could have been, that the exchequer could have been getting that we weren't. And so where Pitt tightens up all sorts of things there, T being the big one, but it was all sorts of things, wasn't it? Um, Suddenly the revenues go way up. Yeah. And it becomes sort of a realistic possibility to pay off the national debt. Yes. It's that big.
1: Yeah. Uh, And um, he... he consults with... he always, you know, finds... seems to have a, a knack for finding the right consultants on the particular issue. So right, on, yeah. on the thing with the tea smuggling, he consults Richard Twining's right, obviously twinings. now Twining's Tea. Mm, mm. Um, and you know, they, they come up with a strategy of, well, we just expand the radius around Britain that our ships can seize the smuggling ships. We just say, no, 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 now if you're in this radius. And so they managed to seize a lot of the smuggling ships and that sort of, um, not necessarily absolutely cripples. The smuggling industry, but certainly mitigates the worst of the damage.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now it goes on. I mean, well, it still goes on to to this day, doesn't mm. it? You smuggle in loads of cigarettes or whatever right, yeah. in your car and your van. Yeah, come back with a van load of duty free. People smuggle things; they always will. Yeah, probably. Um, but yeah, he sort of breaks the back of it, where it was like an economy damaging thing. He mm. sort of reduces it hugely. Um, and so we've said at the, near the beginning, he's sort of a details man. He's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yes. Um, he's sort of a micromanager on some level. There's nothing that his eye doesn't sort of take in. And um, he's able to um, really turn around the finances, which is, you know, it, it, that's the foundation. If you're going to do any big things, uh, you know, if you're going to have a big army or a big navy or or giant building projects or or just simply not have your country disintegrate. You need a firm foundation of economics. You do. And he's, um, and so, and it's a particular type of person that's able to do that. You know, that's something Robert Walpole was great at, something Chatham was not ever interested in, mm. let alone good at. <laughs> yeah. He didn't even try particularly. It wasn't, that wasn't really his game. But it is for Pitt the Younger, and, and he's good at it.
1: He is, but it's interesting to note as well, just as a point of um, one of his merry, many contradictions. He's very, very fussy and f- um, um, careful about public spending and finances, but absolutely useless in his own personal finances, mm-hmm. constantly mm-hmm. ramping up debts, huge debts at the end of his life, mm-hmm. um, just not on top of them. You know, there are. And um, another one of his things whilst he was in office was that he was just terrible for answering letters, hmm. uh, there, there even mm-hmm. after his death. You okay. know, he had unopened letters from like 30 years before that he just never got round to opening or, you know, addressing. So, but, you know, because he... He just sort of always would answer them from the most important people. You know, invariably, just uh, someone probably just asking me for another peerage
0: or whatever. So he just left a
1: lot of them piled up, you know, carelessly at the side for much of his life.
0: It's interesting. He's not the only example of someone who's extremely good with figures and numbers and uh, a great financier um, when it came to sort of state finances and terrible with their own personal debt. Mm. Um, I did a conversation fairly recently with Benjamin Boyce about Alexander Hamilton, ah. who's a, a great money man um, in all sorts of ways. Set the stage for the United States to be a powerhouse of commerce and finance, and yet uh, his own personal finances were a complete state. Um, he was terrible with money himself in his own with his own sort of personal bank account, so to speak. Um, so yeah, Pitt was. It was one of those, strangely. Uh, It was completely commonplace in the 18th and 19th century um, for great people, or not even those centuries, throughout a lot of history, if you're powerful and you come from sort of a landed rich family to just perpetually live in debt, massive debt. Mm. Even the Prince Regent. Oh, yes. The king himself, the crown itself, um, bumbling along in giant debt. Um, and, well, uh, Pitt was no exception. Um, you mentioned when he died, I think, didn't he have the equivalent of a couple of million pounds worth of debt or something? About two two in, million, I think. In today's money. Yeah, about... Now, that's... 40,000
1: pounds in his day. That's, that's Sorry, no, huge. sorry, no, 24, I think it was in his day.
0: All right. 24. And adjusted today, it'd be a couple of million quid. Yeah. I mean... That sort of madness, to me, is anyway, um, like how I wouldn't be able to sleep for the stress of it. Mm. Because if if your debtors come a knocking, suddenly you have to declare bankruptcy. And even in those days, it's not so much now, but in those days, if you were for some reason actually forced to formally, legally declare bankruptcy, that was a a giant disgrace. Your political career may well be over. So... If, the, if, if people want to try and ruin you that way, they can. Uh, it would just be a giant um, black cloud, a shadow, hanging over you at all times. Uh, the stress of that, <laughs> I mean, uh, well, the, str- the stress in his life is a big part of his ultimate downfall. But um, but we'll, we'll get to that. Sure. So, oh. so reform was one of the big things on his docket in his... Um, uh, his program for government, right? Um, what what are some of the other Ireland biggest things? Ah, the was, Irish question was a course. big,
1: big part of his, his policy question. making, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was. There, there were two facets to to Ireland that he tried to work on. One was the religious question, you know, of Catholic emancipation, uh, which will certainly become a bigger topic later on. But the the more immediate one was his he diagnosed a lot of the problem as economic. And um, Pitt was very much influenced, as many people were back in the day, by the wealth of nations, by Adam Smith. Right. And he certainly believed in a lot of free market solutions to to cure um well, to, to smooth out the edges, you know, and to to alleviate poverty and to, you know, trust that the market will, you know, sort of work in the self-interest of most people. Um, And so he wanted to basically create frictionless trade between Great Britain and Ireland. And this was very much contested by um, the English, uh, by the British parliament. Um, But obviously the Irish had their own separate parliament at this point. So not only whenever it came to Ireland, Pitt didn't just have to get his proposals and his legislations through one House of Commons he had to get it through two House of Commons because he had to find some sort of um, uh, compromise always that could work for both Britain and the Irish and very very rarely could you could you make that happen
0: hmm. because of course deep into the nineteenth century there was still the Irish question. That's what they would call it, I, you know. I'm not yeah. trying to be deliberately provocative. that is what <laughs> they would call it. And well, well, even into the late 20th century, you've got The Troubles right. and you could, you could argue that it was only really brought to an end uh, with the Good Friday Agreement under Tony Blair. Sure. And uh, it's all a continuation, or you could say from sort of Henry II up to Tony Blair. Right. It's just an endless headache politically for both sides, yeah, for both sides. Yes, um, and, and so it was. A, that was a big thing in during Pitt's day, or at least during the first portion of his premiership. Uh, but he did do he did do well, right? I suppose you could say uh, people look back on it and say that he did. He didn't exasperate it. He didn't make it worse. He did put in place some reforms.
1: To watch the full video, please become a premium member at LotusEaters.com.